Hello and welcome to Rock and Roll Politics with me, Steve Richards, the weekly podcast. Thank you all so much for tuning in wherever you are around the world. It's great to be back and with us all together to make sense of things. Before I get going, uh, just a few words about last week's live stream for those of you who joined in. Thank you very much indeed. We got, during the live evening, uh, there were about 200 questions during the interval. I kind of started to print out the questions on the live chat. And after about 12 pages, I thought, my God, you know, we're going to be here until two in the morning. Uh, so anyway, for those of you who took part, it was great. And the next one's on March the 17th. Tickets are already available. For those of you who weren't there, the prediction that we voted on was whether social distancing would still be in place by the end of the year. It was a kind of way of testing, really, the degree to which that phrase, back to normal, makes any sense, even with the success of the vaccine rollout programme. And by a huge majority, 82% voted that social distancing will still be in place with the mask wearing and so on. So even with things opening up, it won't wholly be back to normal. So there we are. Those predictions quite often are wrong. In fact, well known to be reliably wrong. But there we go. Thought I would throw that one in. Later on, we'll have a few more of your questions after the 200 questions on Wednesday night. I'm afraid I didn't read them all out. But actually, those who had emailed from the podcast, because I'd mentioned I was going to focus on Keir Starmer, a lot of those did get read out right at the very beginning. So I guess without further ado, before I do my spiel for the week, which I'll tell you what that's going to be about any second, here is the email address for those of you who want to make points or uh, email me about a question or whatever else is going on, what you're up to while you're listening to the podcast. We got such a variety last week. I didn't know where to start. Watching the sea from Brisbane, walking the Manchester Canal. There's so many of them. It was uh, the walking the River Rhine in Germany. I was just oh, it was kind of living a well-being life vicariously. Anyway, Whatever point you've got to make, it's steverick14 at icloud.com. So it'd be great to hear from uh, some of you uh, during the coming days as the sort of madness continues. In the meantime, I would like to focus on the rise and rise of Lord David Frosty Frost. Now in the Cabinet responsible for the Brexit negotiation, even though Brexit, of course, has been done. Oven ready. Get Brexit done. Just vote for us in the election. Done. There he is, Lord Frost, emerging from the triumph of his negotiation over the trade deal on Christmas Eve. Johnson, cakeism, call it cakeism if you want this deal. And he was then meant to move on gloriously to become National Security Advisor with no experience whatsoever of security. But instead, in a way, a more elevated position in the Cabinet, Frosty. There's a book, a novel almost, a darkly comic novel to be done about Frosty. This curious figure who has operated in the background, non-elected so far, not even 
accountable in any form. That's one of the things which changes. Now he's in the cabinet with formal responsibility for Brexit. And in a way, when I heard about this latest elevation of Frosty, I was furious because even though some of you who listen are fans of Brexit or supported Brexit, I think most of you would accept that this deal that has surfaced is at the very least one that raises many questions on the most fundamental level. It's a deal that really is not a deal at all. It throws all the issues into the long grass as I've and others who listen have reflected on in recent weeks. So even on that basis, those listeners on the Brexit wing of the rock and roll politics growing community surely cannot claim that Frost emerged triumphant on Christmas Eve from his basement where he had been negotiating whilst eating pizzas for the last nine months. So I thought, God, you know, he's had another bloody reward for being catastrophic. And then I reflected a bit more and thought, ah, but this is interesting. You know, few people in public life in Britain live on to face the consequences of their policies. You know that phrase, the chickens coming home to roost. They usually in politics come home to roost while when, you know, the, the originators of the policy have long gone and it's others who have to face the consequences. Well, Frosty now must face the consequences of his own deluded ineptitude with that deal in which, you know, there he, he thinks being so aggressive and macho and jingoistic triumphed. And poor old Govey, Frosty Govey, you know, this Etonian kind of nicknames. Govey has been sidelined partly on the grounds of just being too polite in the EU negotiations with his Irish protocol. Johnson presumably has reached the wrong conclusion and he's a bad reader of events uh, or, or reads conveniently but not accurately, convenient for his own assumptions, uh, that Govey negotiated a weak protocol and has been weak in navigating its chaotic implementation. So bring in Frosty. Frosty will sort them out. And yet Frosty, with his aggressive approach, has delivered chaos so far with this deal. And you just have to look at the workings of, or the non-workings of the protocol to see quite how chaotic that has been. And although Gove was responsible for the negotiation, it was the protocol a direct consequence of Johnson's approach to the withdrawal agreement. He couldn't bear Theresa May's deal, which involves staying in the customs union until magical technology arrived. Blimey, the madness we've been through with this Brexit. So he moved the barrier between Great Britain and Northern Ireland. So the barrier for the purity of the single market became that one between Great Britain and Northern Ireland. He claimed it was a triumph, but that meant the protocol a mechanism for checking goods between Great Britain and Northern Ireland and the other way too. He can never blame himself for anything, so he blames poor old Gove for trying to make this protocol workable without uh, the UK government breaking the law as it once threatened to do. So he's bringing in Frosty for that. 
But meanwhile, Frosty will have to face the consequences of the chaos elsewhere, the chaos of uh, we're reclaiming our waters. And yet actually what is happening is that those fishing in those famous waters, uh, which have been much prioritised throughout this whole period, are faced, finding that the paperwork is such the fish are kind of inedible by the time the paperwork has been done, etc., etc. So that's over to Frost, this curious figure who kind of had a career in the foreign office, was indeed a diplomat where people report a fairly mild-mannered, pragmatic kind of figure. Uh, he bumped into uh, Johnson when he was in Brussels for a bit, then when Johnson was writing fantasies for the Daily Telegraph about the European Union. And then the two of them met again in the Foreign Office. And it's curious, I think, that one way or another, Johnson, of course, famously chose to be a hardline Brexiteer. He doesn't believe in it. Uh, but Or he's come to believe it, I, I suspect, because it he has no choice but to believe it as he sees it. You know what I mean? I mean, when he first began on this journey, he couldn't work out whether he was a Remainer or a Brexiteer. But the journey has compelled him, as he's seen it, to become more and more hardline and provocative and aggressive. And Frost has evidently gone on some kind of journey as well, although people tell me he really is a true believer. He believes in the myth of pure sovereignty and the myth that if this great Britain, no one, no one challenges Britain. Uh, and so he kind of thinks his aggressive approach has been triumphant and works and that the reason for the chaos in Northern Ireland is because Gove has just been a soft touch. It's all a fantasy. But now he will have to deliver and work through the consequences as they are being played out, frost, frosty of this approach. But we must never forget, although we will get to know Frost a bit more, we will hear him speak. He will cease to become like one of these silent members of the royal family who you see emerging from his basement every now and again and walking slightly uh, unconfidently, I always think, but it, it, it shows how facades are uh, can be misleading because clearly Frosty has a full sense of his own worth and mission and uh, has a strongly self-confident approach to his own opinions and ideology and his view of Britain so outdated in its kind of jingoistic nonsense but it's so we'll hear Frosty presumably he will give media interviews as a minister every now and again if he's allowed out uh, we've seen him I don't know if any of you have caught him every now and again very rarely actually He's appeared before parliamentary select committees with Govey, Frosty and Govey together. But Frosty doesn't say very much. He leaves most of it to Gove to charm the MPs. That's a very interesting question. When you say I'm a disaster, I know what you mean. But, you know, Gove does that kind of thing. Frosty kept it to a few technicalities when he's opened his mouth in public. Well, presumably now he will appear on the media every now and again and will be questioned in the House of Lords. Now, as others have pointed out, this is a bizarre twist in itself. It is a weird form of accountability. A non-elected minister being held to account by figures none of whom have been elected in the House of Lords. 
but it's better than not being held account at all, which was Frosty's position all the way through his calamitous sequence of negotiating uh, junctions, all of which have proven to be disastrous, all of which he is convinced have been triumphs. Uh, so he will be questioned in the House of Lords, and that can be broadcast. We can watch it. That is better than nothing. When I tweeted, at last he'll be held to account, loads of people said, you're kidding. You know, not even Pretty Patel is held to account in the House of Commons. Indeed, Johnson himself is hardly held to account. Well, I know what you mean by that, but honestly, he has been so cocooned, Frosty, this favoured figure, Cummings' favourite, Johnson's favourite, that this is the equivalent of being exposed to a kind of tempest compared with being in a warm, sheltered room. And so it will be a difference for Frosty. And there will be greater media scrutiny of him. And becoming a cabinet minister means you become a sort of public figure and not one sheltered behind the scenes. What Claire Short once said to me, the people in the dark, you know, the advisers. So I think it will be a degree of exposure that Frosty isn't used to. But, of course, isn't it ironic that the great Brexit crusade was all about parliamentary sovereignty and accountability and the figure conducting the negotiation that is far from over is a non-elected figure in the non-elected House of Lords. I mean, the whole thing is just multi-layered in its preposterous ironies. Uh, but the rise of Frosty as well is, is an extraordinary thing that prime ministers have these favourites. They decide these figures matter to them and have delivered for them quite often without justification you know the, the, there's the uh, kind of been so many famous well indeed Cummings for Johnson Johnson decided that Dominic Cummings was a genius who uh, guided him towards triumph after triumph and would deliver for him all kinds of extraordinary things as prime minister until the moment when he realized Cummings was a deeply flawed figure who was causing chaos and was not helping him at all, at which point Cummings went. I wonder when he will dump Frosty. It would be an interesting relationship to watch. Frost Frosties are not as volatile a figure as Cummings, not fueled by hate as Cummings partly was, but I mean, he's a calmer figure, but he's as deluded and will be, I think, as destructive in the role he's got in relation, forming relationships with the European Union as anyone, uh, certainly as much as Cummings. Now, whether Johnson will regard that as electorally useful, because I'm sure he will want to fight the next election as he fought the last one. That's what election-winning prime ministers tend to do, fight the last election again. So I'm sure Johnson will see advantages in engineering, in inverted commas, war with Europe via Frosty. But the economic chaos that Frosty and Johnson have already caused will be intensified if that's the route he, Johnson, wants Frost to take. And that is my final thought on the whole thing at this point. We must always remember that although, of course, Frost is broadly 
unaccountable non-elected figure in the cabinet in the House of Lords. It is Johnson's decision to put him there. It is always the Prime Minister in the end who must be held accountable for the appointments they make and the route those people decide to take. Because if the Prime Minister is not happy with what Frosty is doing, he would intervene. So Frosty will be carrying out instructions. And so once again, we must make judgments about Johnson. And although in his number 10 now, there are calmer figures guiding him towards a more structured, ordered approach to things, his view of Brexit has become increasingly demented as time has gone on, Johnson's. Uh, the view that aggression works and trying to appease doesn't. He must have that view, however diplomatic he's been in public about our friends in Europe, else he would not have put Frosty in this post. And so many other things. It always comes back to the Prime Minister and their choice of advisers. It tells us much about the Prime Minister, more so than their advisers. Anyway, we will get to know more about Frost and his techniques, and many businesses will face the consequences in the months to come. Will it be years? Don't know. But uh, that will be one worth watching. And indeed, coming to your questions, uh, Stephen Townsley raises this right away. Yeah, he mentions the fact that there is something ironic in praise in replacing the elected politician Michael Gove with the unelected bureaucrat Lord David Frost. How many more garlands is Frosty going to get? I mean, he, he has benefited more from the rise of Johnson than anybody else, including every Tory politician. And Gove now has been, for the time being at least, uh, marginalised. It doesn't mean he won't get a big department in the reshuffle. Uh, because Gove is central to the Johnson project. However, uh, kind of levels of mistrust might still be in place between the two of them. Uh, Stephen goes on to make out the book. The theme of Vote Leave was that the EU was run by an elite group of unelected bureaucrats. Nothing screams elite like the House of Lords, the House of Lords being the second largest unelected assembly on the planet, just behind the Central Committee of the Chinese Communist Party. I didn't know that. That's interesting. It, yeah, I mean, it's getting bigger and bigger, the House of Lords. In fact, I, I know more people in the House of Lords than I know people who aren't in the House of Lords. I'm paranoid that I've never been offered a peerage. I bet most of you listening are Lords. But anyway, uh, yeah, the whole thing is kind of crazy. And as I said, when I heard about Frosty going in the Cabinet to negotiate Brexit, you just think, so there's an acknowledgement that Brexit's not done. And there's the elevation of this figure who negotiated the chaos. Uh, and you kind of don't know whether to laugh or be pleased that he will be the one facing the consequences. Now, I got an interesting email from Zaki Boulos, who tuned in to the live stream of Rock and Roll Politics and made that vote and took part in that vote on whether social distancing would still be in place by the end of the year. And he makes an interesting point. He said he voted no because, in my opinion, the rules say you need to social distance, but frankly, I don't see it anywhere in practice. So he was just voting no, not because he didn't believe in it and 
for libertarian reasons, but as he continues to write, people might be keeping more of a distance, but I would argue only marginally more, certainly not the two metres worth. So I voted no, not because I don't think we will still have restrictions, but because few people in London are, and I assume many cities will have this issue as well. They're just not social distancing. Uh, now, he said, this might make me sound, though I voted as a libertarian. I assure you, I'm not. Uh, yeah, no, that's an interesting point. I don't know where your experience is where you are around the UK anyway, but there's something weird about this lockdown. It is far busier out and about than the last one. Now, I know the, you know, the last big one uh, a year ago, and I know the constraints aren't as great as then, but nonetheless, they are pretty damn limited. And even I, I'm on the cautious wing on all of this, the opposite of the libertarian wing. But even I, my kind of, I don't think, you know, the leaks we're getting about the roadmap, some of you will be listening to this once we've already had the roadmap uh, from Boris Johnson. But my heart sunk when one of the leaks was, I've no idea whether it's accurate, oh yeah, uh, later in March, you'll be free enough to sit on a park bench with one other person. I thought, my God, is that's the limit to what we're going to look forward to. Things are uh, getting dark. But at the same time, I agree with Zaki, if you go out and about, there are some places as close to being like in a football match in the old days, you know, people close together, having coffee and all the rest of it. And the traffic in London anyway, it seems to me as busy at times as the olden days when we were allowed out. So it is strange and it's, it is interesting. I say the vast majority predicted that social distancing will still be in place. The measures we're under on that front now and, and mask wearing. But if that is right, what about the fact that people seem to be less cautious on the social distancing front now anyway? So how will it keep going for the rest of this year, especially with people being vaccinated? Uh, but he makes the point, Zaki, that the reason why we cannot feel so relaxed is the new variants. And that is surely the case. I don't want to sort of strike a gloomy note because you're all out and about running and climbing Arthur's seat and walking the Manchester Canal and looking at oceans and all the rest of it. But these bloody variants are a factor which makes predicting that misleadingly imprecise phrase a return to normal quite hard to uh, make sense of. So I think that's um, an interesting point and explains why Zaki voted no to social distancing simply because it's quite hard to enforce even now. So imagine kind of six months, seven months in, and we're already, I think all of us getting lockdown fatigue, uh, you know, in different ways. But we have got that to look forward to. Sitting on a park bench with one other person. Wow. Anyway, thank you for that, uh, Zaki. Gareth Curzon has written in saying, uh, just a thought about nuance and public debate. To what extent has nuance been lost in our public de debate? How might it be restored? I'm often struck by how political debate seems to think voters or issues operate solely in a black and white way and shades of grey get lost. Yeah, well, Gareth, I am a massive fan of nuance. It's deeply unfashionable to be a fan of nuance. 
but I am. And and the other thing is, you know, I think nuance is what makes debate and politics interesting. And that the stereotypes, you know, X is a war criminal, Y is an extremist, you know, and hard left and hard right and, you know, all these things uh, make politics less interesting. But, I, you know, if, you're, if you want a column, you write one of those and the editor says, oh, great, that's brave. But it's, you're writing bollocks because it's all much more complicated and people are more interested when it gets complicated. It's like a good thriller when you realise that what you think you've been seeing is not the case and you've been actually something else has been going on even though what has been going on was visible if you chose to see it. You know what I mean? That's when you get into nuance and that's why, God, you know, I'm, I'm a, an echo chamber on this, but that's why broadcasters should allow things to breathe a bit because that's when you get a bit of nuance creeping in and when you get nuance it becomes more interesting and viewers and listeners become more interested not less but you try saying that and you know kind of a lot of editors think you're speaking latin Uh, they're convinced you know these oxbridge educated people it's it's uh, there's a word for it. it's counterintuitive snobbery or whatever it is you know people only have an attention span of 25 seconds and what they like to see is a good row between someone yeah someone on the hard left someone on the far right a blazing row put it out on twitter the row loads of hits that's that's what we're all about and they 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 don't do that so they then go back and read huge novels and biographies and stuff but with, in a totally misguided, patronising way, they think, oh, we know what the people want. And they bloody well don't. It's going to be interesting, this new channel, GB News. I know there's all this talk about, is it going to be Fox and stuff? But will they dare let discussions breathe? They too think they know what the people want, you know, and the BBC is all metropolitan. That's nonsense as well. But let's see if they think they know about letting things breathe. Where, If, Gareth, what you mean by that is there's no left or right, that I don't believe. There is a, there's, you know, there's always been and always will be a left and right view of looking at things. But politics is interesting when nuance is allowed to reign. That's what I think anyway. I don't know what you all think, but anyway, that's what I think. Nuance, yeah. Uh, Paul Kearney uh, writes, and context, because we're coming to a bit of context here. I'm a great fan of context. There was an interesting piece. Sorry, Paul, before we get to your question. There was an interesting uh, piece in this week's New Statesman from Harry Lambert uh, examining the BBC and its challenges. And he was pointing out, you know, the challenges for people like Laura Coonsfolk, their political editor, in this world of opinionated news to the degree to which you can comment and uh, report in a way that doesn't trigger a thousand complaints about bias. But I think one thing you can do, and the BBC should do more of, is contextualise. It was one of the things John Burke tried to bring in, and it was bloody hard. He had to work really hard at it. They accused him of being Stalinist, but he struggled to get any of his ideas through the convoluted hierarchy. And he believed that, you know, one thing an impartial broadcaster can do, it was his mission to explain thing. 
you know, was put in context. So no event happens by chance out of the blue from a vacuum. But sometimes hearing some senior BBC broadcasters, you would think that was the case. Today, X has said this, Y has done that. You know, what is the context? How does it compare with other situations? Uh, You know, and and weighing up significance. Okay, so a Downing Street source might say this. Fair enough to report it, I think. But contextualise it and explain its significance or relative insignificance. Anyway, on that, Paul Kearney says, You mentioned Blair and Callaghan in a recent podcast. Blair sought the views of Roy Jenkins before he became Prime Minister. But would he have learned more by consulting with Callaghan, Jim Callaghan and Dennis Healy instead? It's, it, by the way, uh, Jim Callaghan was quite offended that uh, Blair chose Roy Jenkins from that Labour era to become a sort of confidant and uh, mentor figure. Blair was drawn to Jenkins for one reason that's quite interesting. It came up a lot in the live uh, stream on Wednesday night, which is this idea of whether non-Tory progressives need to somehow come together in some form or another. And that was, of course, Jenkins' uh, great lesson that he tried to teach Blair, that the the 20th century was a Tory century, because progressives couldn't come together on the centre-left. And Blair, of course, began moves to heal that breach with his relationship with Paddy Ashdown, but he didn't believe in electoral reform, and in the end was, in his own way, tribal. Didn't really want to work in government with the Lib Dems, I think, when it came to it. But that's one of the reasons why he chose Jenkins. He also found it useful politically, although it was a huge distortion, to dismiss the past of Labour as old. One of his techniques was this chronological device. We were new, they were old, as a kind of divide. Contrary to mythology, he didn't have loads of fights with the Labour Party. You know, one of the bad bits of advice Keir Starmer is getting is fight your party. That's the way you show you're a leader. Look at what Blair did. Well, Blair didn't do that. He did say there was old Labour and they were new. And that, in a way, deterred him from being too close to those he identified inevitably as old. Callaghan responded in an interview with me, actually, that he was original Labour, not old Labour. But he didn't speak much to Callaghan and Healy because he saw them, I think, as symbolising the chaos of the 70s and losing elections uh, when he had every intention of winning. He saw Jenkins as less associated with that period, which, of course, he was. I mean, he left the Labour Party to form the SDP in the early 80s and went off to Brussels before the full chaos of the 70s overwhelmed that Labour government. He himself was a successful chancellor in the late 60s. So that's why he did it. I think on the whole that previous figures should be kept at some distance because they can never wholly escape their own context. So Keir Starmer, I hear, is speaking to Peter Mandelson. Fine. 
Peter Mandelson has insights and qualities as a strategist, as a thinker, and as an experienced policymaker. But don't hug them too close. They've all got things to say. Gordon Brown is clearly a big influence on Keir Starmer and his uh, shadow treasury team as well. I can tell. I know they've spoken to him, but I can tell as well from some of the things they're saying and doing that Brown is an influence. Fine. These are big figures who won elections and governed for three terms, something that is highly unusual in Labour's history. But the context in which Keir Starmer makes his moves are wholly different from the mid-1990s, inevitably, when Blair and Brown navigated their way triumphantly from opposition to an election landslide victory in 97. So I think, actually, Paul, they should all be kept at a distance. In the end, Roy Jenkins was kept at a big distance in reality. So, like, Blair asked him to do a big report on electoral reform, but it was never implemented, and the pledge to hold a referendum on it was never made. And Jenkins' last speech in the House of Lords was to warn that the war in Iraq would be a disaster. He died shortly afterwards. So these relationships can sour quite quickly. Uh, finally, uh, Kevin Winstanley asks, could you give us some thoughts on the COVID recovery group and its similarities to the ERG and why the BBC is giving its chairman, this is uh, the ubiquity of uh, people like Steve Baker, who was from the ERG, now in this group, I assume he's in this group, uh, and others, uh, why their views are given so, uh, so much uh, publicity on the BBC when they're at variance with the public. It is interesting, this COVID recovery group, partly because uh, it spouts such nonsense about the speed in which the uh, England should open up. Obviously, Scotland, Wales, Northern Ireland will take its own decisions. But it's it's not only that which is so interesting. It's the, um, you know, none of it evidence-based. Mind you, the ERG group stuff wasn't evidence-based either on Brexit. But the other thing that's interesting is this relatively recent mood uh, amongst conservative backbenchers to be troublemakers. It wasn't the fashion in amongst conservative parliamentarians to be troublemakers until the early to mid-1990s. It began with the revolts against the Maastricht Treaty and the sort of near pleasure they got in making John Major's life hell. And ever since, there has been a fascination with and an enjoyment of mischief-making, rebellions, threats to rebel, making life difficult for their leaders. And so the ERG group has in some ways morphed, not wholly, but partly into this COVID recovery group. Both uh, terrified Johnson. The ERG group, to some extent, made him. Uh, they supported his leadership. They backed his withdrawal agreement, having opposed Theresa May's, without thinking through precisely what Johnson had done. The ERG always said it would never split with the DUP. But the DUP now are fuming over what Johnson has done with Northern Ireland. They shouldn't thought it through they wanted a hard brexit as well but anyway the reason they get such publicity well they represent a force in the tory parliamentary party posing that question is that significant uh, that john burke question which 
BBC editors should pose much more often. They have a significance of some extent because they influence Johnson. Uh, you know, if they withdraw their support from him, he would find that deeply damaging. They also chime with some of his instincts, even though he's being a bit more cautious. As I say, some of you will have heard the roadmap by the time you've heard this, so you will know the degree to which caution is playing its part and the degree to which the COVID recovery group are angry with him or pleased with him or whatever. So they have a significance. So that's why they're given some airtime. But again, I don't know why people are scared to contextualise because to contextualise is fair enough. And as you say, Kevin, they're wholly at variance, variance on this with public opinion. With Brexit, even though I suspect their hardline wasn't at one with public opinion, uh, they were at one in their support for Brexit in that a majority backed it in that referendum, although polls suggest subsequently people were changing their minds. So, But that's why they get some attention. They have some significance as a voice within the parliamentary party. I better shut up because, I say, some of you will have heard the roadmap out of this nightmare. Whether the roadmap will enhance the nightmare over time will be a question perhaps I'll look at uh, next week when we have both the data, the roadmap in England, there'll be equivalents in uh, Scotland, Northern Ireland and Wales as well. I don't know, frankly, what I'll be reflecting on next week because, well, you know, things move quite quickly at the moment, don't they? Well, on one level they do. There's an, uh, There's always an impression of politics of speed whereas actually the trends and the themes are fairly constant. That could be a podcast in itself. But anyway, look, I'm going to shut up now. I just want to say thank you all very much for tuning in, for your questions. Do keep them coming. For those of you running and jogging, I gave the email uh, at the beginning of the podcast, quite close to the beginning, and I'll put it on the blurb uh, when the podcast goes out in whatever form you can get it. You can get it on the usual kind of uh, iTunes one or you can get it on Spotify. But you know all that. So do subscribe so you get it automatically. I get excited when podcasts arrive automatically. And if you could send uh, do one of those reviews, uh, that would be great as well uh, because it then acquires an even greater prominence than us lot already listening. Many, many of us around the world anyway thank you very much see you next time when once together we'll gather together to try and make sense of it all thank you thank you